Amen. All right. Well, uh, about two months ago, somebody within the church family graciously hooked up Lynn and I with a chicken coop and six chickens. So we've been getting chicken eggs for the last two months or so. It's been awesome. Super fun. The other day, I went outside to let the chickens out. And there was only four chickens, not six chickens. And there was a pile of feathers on the ground. Uh-oh, what happened there? Well, turned out two of them got attacked that night. So I set up a ring camera to find out the next night what's going to come back thinking it's open season. Chick-fil-A is open at the Schwank house. So let's see. So I set up this camera. We're, I'm going to show you the footage in a moment. I want you to guess. There's four options I was suspecting. Um, you have uh, potentially not as likely, but anyone think it was an eagle or a bird of prey of some sort? No? All right. How about a fox? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, then a raccoon. Yeah. And then a wolf or coyote. Yeah, coyote. All right. All right. All right. Mixed bag. If I had enough prizes, we'd give them, but we're done with prizes. We got stuff to do today. So I want you to see this. This is the footage. You'll get the... Look at that sweet coop. There he is. All right. Looks like someone's getting a coonskin cap for Father's Day. I'm going to... All this... For the last several years, we've had uh, two raccoons that kind of, you know, meander. Times they even hang out with our cats just casually. And we never knew that these animals would attack a chicken. Lo and behold, uh, they do. So I found out right on it, and uh, I didn't know it was such, a, uh, such an animal that, you know, given the option, it will just instinctively eat what it wants to right there, including a chicken, and make a whole mess of it all. And as I looked at this and read on this and learned about, like, their natural instincts as a predator, particularly with, you know, these little, nice little chickens that we got, it, we, we learn that it is instinct for them to attack and to eat, it's part of who they are. They cannot escape this. And as we think about our own spiritual lives, this morning we learn lessons on how to live with a new spiritual instinct, one that the Holy Spirit births within us. He's given us a new, a new heart and a new life, and we are able to live out what he has for us. Listen to these words in Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This morning we learn how to live with new spiritual instinct, that which is so repetitive, so common, it is, it is uh, infused with your character. It is your natural response in this certain moment. It is so common for you. It is so um, characteristic of you that it would be likened to your own instinct, that which the Holy Spirit is working out within you. This morning in the book of Daniel, as we begin our new series, we're in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read a fantastic story and walk through all this. And so I invite you to turn to Daniel 1. Starting in verse 1, Daniel is in the Old Testament, and it's kind of buried in between a bunch of prophets. But if you come across Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, which are pretty meaty books, it'd be after Ezekiel. And so, Daniel chapter 1. 
It begins this way. Let's read this. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. I want to stop there, first of all, because if the book of Daniel was a series on like HBO or Showtime or something, that verse would be the whole first episode of the series. Because within that verse, we learn all sorts of things about what is happening in the moment and among the people. Imagine this, the opening scene of this series, there'd be, there'd be a family or a bunch of people, they'd be in Jerusalem, they'd be gathering the king, he'd be having dinner with his family and some advisors, they'd be talking, and then the filmmakers want to give you this deep... Uh, emotional connection with the character. So you'd have some of the kids running around, the mother like working with them, the kids, you know, some of them messing with each other, some of them having fun, and you'd be thinking, oh, look at this family. Maybe there'd be dialogue there. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of the meal, a messenger rushes in, and he says, they're here. And everything changes. Like the music changes, the scene changes, the, the mom grabs the kids, they, they try to go to another room, and then the king with his advisors go off and plan their strategy on how they're going to defend against the incoming attack. This is what is playing out. We don't feel this when we read verse 1 because all we read is, all right, this is Jehoiakim and Nebuchadnezzar, and they besieged it. But what occurs within this is a tragic horror of war in which for about 15 to 20 years, Babylon has successive attacks upon Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. And this is one of the, this is, uh, this is mm, I would call it the second wave of attack, if you consider the first one when Jehoiakim becomes a vassal for Nebuchadnezzar and kind of, kind of a pawn within him. But here you have this second wave, and Nebuchadnezzar in this moment is attacking, and the people are responding. When we read about this, we recognize that many people were killed. The Jerusalem temple was plundered over the course of these different attacks. 2 Kings chapter 24 actually describes it this way, naming that there were 7,000 men of valor who were captured. There were 1,000 craftsmen that were captured. It says that the only ones who remained were the poorest of the land. Eventually, Jerusalem and Judah was conquered. And that is the picture of verse 1. Now let's read verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, now notice who, who is the agent and the one working behind the scenes here. This is the Lord. None of this took God by surprise, and he orchestrated these events and used Nebuchadnezzar like a uh, puppet in the hands of a puppet master in order to execute God's judgment on his own people. Now, you might be saying, why would God allow this? This is awful. I mean, you got kids involved. Yes, because 400 years of disobedience from King David till now Jehoiakim for the majority of kings, they were rebellious in the sight of God. God had blessed them, he had protected them, and now enough had been enough. The judgment had been executed. God warned his people that eventually this would occur. These words are actually found in many places. Several prophets talk about this. It's one of the, it's one of the stereotypes of the prophets. You know, like, thus saith the Lord, here comes judgment. Well, oftentimes, they're actually talking about the judgment either, either to this kingdom of Judah or kind of a, a sibling kingdom called Israel, and they were there together. 
and they were attacked differently. I want you to listen to these words from Ezekiel 23 and how, how God explains to them just the, just the, the travesty of now why they need to be disciplined. And I'm only going to read for you a portion. Uh, I'm going to skip the part that is the most explicit. It is intense, and I'm not going to get into that here because there's a limited amount that I want to talk through. But listen to the words starting in verse 22. It says, Therefore, O holy, wait, what? How do you say this one? O holy, anyway. It's just a metaphor. It's saying Judah, but that's, he's telling, he's talking about two sisters. He gives them names. This is the second sister. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will stir up against you, your lovers from whom you turned in disgust, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekah and Shoah and Koah and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and commanders, all of them, officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. And they shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of peoples. They shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, shield, and helmet, and I will commit the judgment to them. And they shall judge you accordingly to their judgments. And I will direct my jealousy against you that they may deal with you in fury. They shall cut off your nose and your ears, and your survivors shall fall by the sword. They shall seize your sons and your daughters, and your survivors will be devoured by fire. They shall strip you of your clothes and, uh, and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring begun in the land of Egypt, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you turned in disgust, and they shall deal with you in hatred and take away all the fruit of your labor and leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered. Your lewdness and your whoring have brought this upon you because you played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You have gone the way of your sister, therefore, and I will give her cup into your hand. Whoa. A little later, if you move down to chapter 24, it continues, and near the end, these are the words starting verse 13, I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness. You shall not be cleansed anymore till I have satisfied my fury upon you. And then listen to this. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. This is why this attack occurs. And it takes place 15 to 20 years, depending on how you look at the timeline. And it will not be altered. God uses Nebuchadnezzar in this way. Well, now we look at kind of a story within that broader picture. That's the broad context. Now we focus our attention on this guy named Daniel and some of his friends. These are the ones who get captured along with many others, but the story focuses on these guys. And so let's begin here starting in verse 3. Now we're going to learn more about these characters. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel... This is in verse 3, Daniel 1, verse 3. To bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. 
The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at, that, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. He renamed them. So Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So the king did not execute the most brilliant in the land. He was no dummy. He captured them. And he brought them to his own to give them the education through what? Babylon University. For the next three years, they would study, they would learn, and then they would work for the king. Daniel and his friends were about 14 to 15 years old when they were captured. Now, we just discussed the wartime trauma they experienced, their previous lifestyle of nobility and greatness, right? Eating bonbons, playing polo, it is over. No more. That lifestyle is in the past. These boys were ripped from their parents and their sisters and their families. They likely saw family members and friends that were killed during the attack. You could imagine there would be resistors, and they were either slain right there or they were captured. And so there's all this shuffle and stuff. Barrels of tears and blood would have happened. And yet here now they find themselves in Babylon. Learning among all these other young men and wanting to be, you know, aspiring to be and going to eventually be in the king's court to be an advisor or other language they use like um, magicians and others like that. Now, a moment ago, we just read some of their names. I find this detail of their names interesting. I usually don't get into name details when I'm preaching, but this one I will because it is just so interesting. In all four cases, their Hebrew names exalted Yahweh, yet their new names slight, uh, were slightly altered to kind of play off of the Babylonian gods and exalt those pagan gods. So listen to this. Daniel's name, it means God is my judge. But it was changed to Belshazzar, which means protect his life. It, it, it alludes to a pagan deity protecting his life, not God. Hananiah's name, it means Yahweh is gracious. But his name was changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku, which was the moon god. Mishael, uh, his name, uh, it means something literal. I'll tell you what, what the meaning of the literal name was. And that is, there is no God like the God of Israel. And it was changed to Meshach which is essentially, there is no God like Aku. And then Azariah is Yahweh has helped. And his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebu. So not just um, Yahweh has helped, but like you know, the helper is Nebu, right? This reminds me of my daughter. My first daughter, her name is Atlas Everest Grace. And we named her that because the prayer behind her name is that God's grace would flow around the world, starting with the highest point and just throughout. And it would be like somebody trying to mess with her, and down the road, they changed her name and switched out the middle name Grace with hedonism, and that that would flow, you know, from like the highest points in around the world, something, something like that. So you have these play on their names. And here they are, they've been now given the instructions of what they're supposed to do. Well, the tone of this whole story now takes another turn, 
And this starts in verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. I find this interesting, and I didn't think about it until I was reading it, but Ezekiel 23, what I was just reading a moment ago, if you recall, the language was saying that the people had defiled themselves. Did you recall that word? I'm not going to find it in the midst of all these different words here. But that was one of the phrases God said about the people of Judah. And here is Daniel. The language is the same. I don't know if it's the same word, but it is in English. And that Daniel would not defile himself. So it says, uh, so let's continue in verse 8. In the middle there. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, well, I fear my lord, the king, who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. We've had those situations, right, where we talk to our manager about something, and they're like, you know, I would do this for you, but then my boss is going to, you know, fire me. You know, like those conversations. That was kind of what happened here, except not firing. He's, you know, he's going to chop his head off. And verse 11, Daniel said to the steward, whom the, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. All right, so this is his plan. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So for Daniel and his four friends, the issue of food had crossed the line. They were fine with the academics from a totally different people group, different beliefs, a godless people from their perspective and from ours. They were okay even with their new names. Their new names didn't, uh, you know, affect their personal identity, even though this new culture was going to give them these names. But they would not defile their physical diet because God's law was violated with whatever that meat was or however it was prepared. And can you imagine the peer pressure these guys felt, these teenagers, the other Jewish students saying, just eat it. Don't get us in trouble. You're going to get us kicked out. But Daniel resolved, he purposed in his heart, some of your translations say purpose, that he would rather follow God wholeheartedly than to yield to, God, to the king's instruction. At the end of the day, two forces of influence, am I going to trust God or am I going to trust this king who was quite powerful? He just took out his whole, you know, like family and everything, taking everybody out. What would you have done in that situation? Hard to imagine. A little bit ago, I mentioned that the boys were 14 to 15 when they were taken into captivity. Well, if your 14 or 15-year-old was taken in cap into captivity, how would they respond? Would they abandon the faith that you have brought them up in? Those of you who are parents of teenagers, for instance. How well have you... Dis, uh, dis, discipled your students that if they were thrust in this environment they would have the conviction not to defile themselves and also they would have boldness to request a modification of the king's order Qu 
Coincidentally, this week, Lynn and I, we were talking about just our kids being about that age because we celebrated our 10-year anniversary. It was fun. We were having a good time talking through some stuff. And then we said, well, what's the next 10 years look like? So we're brainstorming that a little bit. And my son, who is four, he turns five later this year. So we said, you know, 10 years from now, like this exact moment, Roman's going to be 14. He'll be turning 15. We're like, wow, that's crazy. And we're just thinking through what that looks like for him. And this story from Daniel has been on my mind for several weeks. And so I started just pondering, wow, will we make him strong like Daniel and his friends were in this story? Will he know his God and be able to have conviction in the way that these young men did in this story? It feels very real when I'm thinking about my own kid in the, like, the ten, same 10-year gap. I was just pondering this. As a spiritual leader of my home, what marks do I want for my kids when they are 14 or 15 years old? You know, I hope that they will do well in school. I hope they will have fun in sports. I hope they'll discover artistic talents. I hope they'll make good friends. But I would submit to you, I failed as a parent if my son, Roman, is batting a 400, has straight A's, he knows how to play guitar. He has beaten the latest Mario boss. He knows how to build a fire from two sticks. He already has some side hustle business bringing in some money. But if by that same time, I have never studied most of the Bible with him or memorized a book full of verses with him or taken him on a mission trip, and again, going with him, not just putting him on a plane and saying, see you in a week. I mean, I'd be you know, praying and nervous in certain ways, but no, no going with him, modeling Christian faith. If my own kids by 14 or 15 have not tasted and seen and experienced the fullest measure of God's greatness that I can try to steward well for them, then what have I been doing for the last 10 years? For those of us who are all together in the journey 10 years from now, we can have this conversation. We'll see. And I'll ask you the same thing. I know that we have to pick and choose priorities, a lot of different things on the table for all of us to pursue, for all of us to give time to. But if you're going to pick, pick that which is holy, pick that which is sacred, pick that which is eternal. You don't have to be a lame parent who never has fun. But if you do not build your sons or your daughters into warriors for God's work, then what are we doing? Use the rest of high school to solidify that work. Don't begin it in high school. And it's at this point that I want us to discuss the main focus this morning, and it's from verse 8, and it's that word used about Daniel. He had resolved, or he had purposed in his heart. He had a resolve that was so certain, so unwavering, so rooted, and so habitual that it became instinctive for him. This was going to be what he would do. Just like a predator that acts on instinct to kill my chickens, friends, I want us to have an instinct that the Holy Spirit births and seals and roots and anchors within us, that we would act, that the challenge wouldn't be, oh, I got, a, I got an angel, you know, the hypothetical cultural thing, the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other, and I'm sitting in the debate. No, it's no debate. This is, this is the challenge. This is the response. Don't even need to think about it. I've already been, I've, no, I'm not going to go there. This is where I draw the line. Not going to cross it. You have the instinct for the flesh and it leads to death. But friends, I want us to stir and build not just habits, but an instinct of following the Holy Spirit that leads to life. 
no longer responding to the impulses of the old man, but repetitively building spiritual muscle memory and allowing God to overhaul your appetites so that you will instinctively respond with godliness and with honor. Romans 8, 13, I read it at the very beginning, but I'll reread it now in light of all that context. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live, or, or but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So Daniel resolved this. What about us? What have we resolved? What can we say, I have resolved these things? It might be a, it might be a quite, quite a long list. For me, I actually filled almost a whole page, but as I thought through it even more so for this passage, I started to narrow it down even more so. I mean, like true resolve. There's some stuff I have a lot of um, preferences on and things that I will probably do the same way every time, but godly resolve. What does that look like? Friends, what have you resolved? You will not... You will not budge on... No, no matter the, the peer pressure given to you by a parent or a spouse or um, your workplace or school or even society as a whole, you're saying, I, I will not cross that line. You, you may all go there, but, but I, I won't, I can't. What does that look like? Some of these examples are this. Have you resolved to spend time with God every day. You'd be willing to miss a meal if you have yet to be fed by Scripture. God is a part of your life. It's, it's not a Sunday thing. It's not even in the calendar like a, like a, a regiment. Instead, it's just what you do. You just, you just know. You're like, God and I, we're one-on-one. On one. We, we are, we're going through the day together. Have you resolved to lead your family spiritually? Another, have you resolved to build Christ's name, not your own brand? Men, have you resolved to use your strength to fight off an attack and use your strength to protect those under your care, not to harm them? Specifically, use your strength to punch the enemy, not your wife. Use your strength to slay the dragon, not your kids. Have we resolved to give back to God the first fruits of our harvest? Or are we robbing God? Are we playing Jesse James? It's a dangerous role to play. Have we resolved to run the race and do not quit till God takes us to the finish line? So we run. And if the enemy strikes our legs, we get a wheelchair and we wheel ourselves, right? And if he blows the wheelchair out, then we just use our arms. He cuts our arms off, then we roll. Just roll all the way to the finish line. And you just keep going. You do not quit. What have you resolved? Before Lynn and I were married, we had a, a resolved commitment that we wouldn't have sexual intimacy till we were married. Before God and one another. And we kept that commitment. I share that not as a badge of honor, because I know it's not true for everyone's story. I share that as, a, as, a, as an encouragement to those of you who have yet to be married, and you're like... The urges are burning. Friends, I dated Lynn for five years, and I was 20 to 25. Testosterone was at max capacity in my system. And we held off and, uh, and all that. It was a resolving. We would not cross a line. 
And we didn't, we didn't even like run and try to get as close to it, which is a great encouragement. That's another, another tip and advice along the way. But my question for you is, what have you resolved? I want you to ponder this stuff throughout the day and, 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 and tomorrow maybe uh, while you're laying down in bed. What have you resolved? Have, have you made these? And, and again, godly resolutions, not just like tips on being a man or a woman or something. You know, like one of the tips for being a guy, it's, uh, let's see, give a firm handshake, not the dead fish handshake. Yeah, okay. Like that's, that's good advice. But what, what are resolutions before God? I, I want to give you advice on three ways to identify a godly resolution worth committing to. So the first is this. Begin with the cross of Christ. In order to identify what to resolve, begin with the cross of Christ. This one regards the posture of our heart. Revol uh, re resolving something, purposing in your heart something, is not about creating a checklist or a scorecard to earn God's favor. All of that atoning work occurred on the cross. Instead, we want to ask, how can we worship and glorify God with our best rather than our leftovers, which is kind of our default. Like we just run to giving God like the, the, you know, what's left over at the end. So we answer this question by having the cross at the center. Only by the cross can we be saved and only by the cross can we make a grace-filled resolution that is exuding worship of our heart. So we begin with the cross. Secondly, let's look at scripture. When it comes to being godly and having mature resolutions, we begin with Scripture. It does the heavy lifting, not our earthly wisdom. Scripture informs us on this. We find verses in context, and we let them define how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I don't recall where it is, uh, Psalm 103, I don't know, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, something like this. And, and it says, uh, I will not. It, it doesn't use the language resolve or purpose in my heart, but it's that direct. I will not look with lust upon a woman. It's a resolve. We use scripture to inform us what these are. And thirdly, as you may be thinking through, what have I really resolved? You know, let me step up and begin to live out my faith. Well, this means there will be lines that I will have to draw in the sand at times. Not always necessarily, but just you will have these moments and you want to live and it will be like second nature for you to respond. Uh, thirdly, to develop some sort of good list would be to learn from a mature Christian. If there's someone within the church family or maybe you know somebody else who is genuinely born again, right? They haven't just done the Christian religion, but they are born again and they have walked faithfully with God for say at least 50 years, then you should ask them, how did you do it? A lot of people tap out before they get here. So how did you make it? I want to learn from you. Talk with them. They've had countless reasons to jump ship, but they kept going. And you should hear how. And then consider uh, how God might use that advice to build some resolve within your own heart. So here we see Daniel uh, 1, verse 8. They resolve. Well, what happens from this? Well, the rest of the story, it's famous. I'm going to let you read the rest of chapter 1 for yourself if you want all the details. But to summarize, it's this. The boys asked to eat the veggies and the water to test their appearance against the rest of the young men. After 10 days, were they frailer? No. They were healthier looking. They were stronger looking. 
Great. They are doing good there. And then after three years of training, they stood before King Nebuchadnezzar, and the boys were the top of their class. God was with them. It says that they gave answers that were 10 times better than the others there. It's a fantastic story that describes for us who these kids are. We can learn from them, and they carry us through this, this um, first half of the book, and then Daniel's kind of the second half of the book. We're going to go through this for several weeks as we work through this. And for us this morning, we begin with an excellent challenge, and that is, what have we resolved? And I encourage you to prayerfully identify what those are. Maybe as a couple to talk through what those look like within your marriage. We've resolved, we just aren't going to cross those lines. And I encourage you to have the conversation before the Lord or uh, with, you know, whoever else might be a part of that conversation. Talk through that beforehand. Don't wait until the situation is crumbling or the temptation is right in your face. Just know and build into yourself the habit of how to respond to that. All right? Hey, that's how we're going to end, Maddie. Oh, how about that? Just, you know, hey, when I land planes, I land them like a helicopter. Yeah, we just go, we just go down. Yeah, yeah. Let me pray for us, and then we will, we will worship and respond. Heavenly Father.